Thank, thank you, um, Dr. Enns, for coming to Scotonomics and joining us today. Um, I want to give the audience some feel for, first of all, your economic journey from a student to where you are today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Karin. Um, so I've been studying economics uh, at Göttingen University, which is a um, halfway decent university in Germany, I would say. And then I was doing my PhD and I was all emerged in, in neoclassical economics. So looking at things about economic geography, um, studying how economic activity distributes over space when there's no, no exchange rates, these kind of issues. And then at some point I, I understood that I did not understand money, um, which is important because in my, in my models, um, there was trade in the sense that there was barter. So they were, they were just swapping industrial goods for agricultural goods. Um, but that's not how it works, obviously. So I thought, what happens if I introduce money into these kind of models? It would probably make things complicated, but then it must be more realistic. So, so why not try that? So that was about 2007, where I decided to try to understand money. And so I was a research assistant at Oldenburg University, where I received my doctorate. And then it took me a couple of years. So I think in 2010, I met Randy at a conference in Berlin. So and for your audience, that's um, Randall Ray. Yes, Randall Ray. So un unbeknownst to me, he was part of this MMT group. So I, I listened to his stuff and I thought, well, if that's correct, what he's saying, then most of the stuff that I learned at university is wrong about macroeconomics. So in our models, for example, at university, I also taught them. So I said to my students, if the government spends more money, then the interest rates on the interbank market will go up um, because that's what the model says. And Randy says, no, no, no. When the government spends more money, the banks have more central bank money. And they will offer that to other banks because they want to lend it out. And that means the interest rate has to go down. And I said, okay, that's nice. So I can, I can try to check empirically whether this is true or not. Uh, and it turned out that most of the central bankers that I knew at the time said, well, it's probably correct what Randall Ray says, um, that we, we use open market operations to mop up the liquidity, um, which is economic jargon for, for saying that they, they try to remove the money from the interbank market by selling illiquid government bonds to those banks who have these reserves, these central bank deposits. So I offered to Randy to translate his book, his primer, into German, um, but somehow his um, publishing company said that it cannot be done or it, it should not be done or it's not allowed to do that, whatever the reason was. So I thought, okay, but this is too important. So I want to write a book about the Eurozone. So how do banks in the Eurozone create money? Um, how does the European Central Bank and how do the national central banks create money? And how do the European treasuries, the ministries of finance, how do those create money? Uh, and that's what I did. So in, in by at the end of 2014, I had the first German edition published. And then by 2016, Raut is published my, my first uh, uh, English edition of the book. And um, yeah, that's, that's how I got to know MMT about 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago by now. The EU, the Eurozone, um, is famous, famous for having this 3% deficit rule. Yes. Could you maybe talk us through where that rule came from? And do you think it's possible that the European Central Bank could um, change its mind about this, especially after the pandemic? Yes. Okay, so the, the origins are uh, in the 1990s. So this was the neoliberal neo age. And um, well, the, the Europeans thought about having a new currency, which was bad luck because it was a neoliberal age. So they thought about neoliberal ideas. 
and everybody was concerned with government and overspending. You see, so so the fall of the communist uh, Soviet regime meant that government planning is bad and markets are perfect. So they wanted to create some kind of mechanism which which would stop governments from from spending too much money, whatever that means. So they they had to think about some kind of constraining rule, and they said, okay, let's let's have a deficit limit. Okay, so if government spending uh, is, is higher than taxation, and that's then more than 3% of GDP, then you have a problem. You, you have to cut down your government spending. At least the, the European Commission can, could make you do that if they wanted to. In the beginning, by the way, um, it was not possible to impose austerity because in the beginning, beginning the rules were softer. Okay, So when, when you broke the 3% deficit rule, they sent you a blue letter. Uh, that was just, that was it. Um, but I'm getting ahead of things. So, so what did they do in the 90s? They said, okay, we need some kind of rule. So it's going to be this deficit rule. And which number to pick? Well, the French were were engaged in this, and some some bureaucrat from the Ministry of Finance in in France said, well, you know what? We have a deficit in France right now. It's it's gonna it's like 2.1 percent, something like this. And um, probably we should pick something like. Well, it's, it's, it has to be more than that, because otherwise, if the French government would be breaking the rules right from the start. So, so why not pick 3%? So it's, it's, a good, it's a good number. Okay, it's not too far away from where we are. And historically, probably it's, it's also some kind of average. So there, there was just some, some lowly bureaucrats in the French uh, Ministry of Finance who picked this kind of number. There was no academic discussion. They just presented the number and everybody said, okay, yeah, that sounds more or less reasonable. Um, so that, that was the 1990s um, when the markets knew best. Um, and that's that's when the euro was designed. Um, so, yeah, I mean, by now, um, it's it's kind of obvious that the rules don't work. Um, so coming back to, to the 2000s, so the rules didn't work in the 2000s because Germany and France, they, they broke the rules all of the time. Okay, so the, the deficits of both those countries were, were in, in deficit of more than 3% every single year. I think apart from one in France, but Germany broke the rules in the beginning of the euro every year. And then the other countries like Greece and Spain and Italy said, well, that's not what, so, what you're supposed to do. Okay, so let's strengthen the rules. So if you break the rules again, the European Commission can tell you to, to cut down government spending or increase taxes, tax rates, in order to, to lower the deficit. Okay, so it's a bit ironic or tragic, more tragic than ironic, that those countries who were later affected by the austerity policies, well, those were the, the countries that made, made those policies possible because otherwise they would have just received a blue letter. Um, so they changed the rules, I think, in 2006 or seven. so it's just right before the crisis, but they, they couldn't see it, of course. Um, and then when it happened, of course, it was a big mess because the rules were, were too strict. So in a crisis, you will have big deficits because tax revenues are going down. And in the U.S., they had deficits of 12%, and Obama said, ah, it will come down, it will come down, no problem, we'll do the fiscal stimulus part. But in, in, the, Europe, in the Eurozone, from 2009 to 2010, we switched from, from well, expansionary Keynesian policies to the austerity policies. Um, and that was, of course, it was a tragedy in the end. Um, it was a policy blunder. It was, it was very bad advice that many economists gave to the European Commission, led by Alessina, I think is his name, the Italian economist who, who died recently. Um, and it was catastrophic. So we now have, well, we had a change of the rules, by the way, after that. So there was a general escape clause inserted in the Stability and Growth Pact. 
um, in the first reform wave in the early 2010s. And then they, they also created, of course, a, a change in the policy of the ECB. So under Trichet, Jean-Claude Trichet, who was president of the ECB before, he said, well, we we're not going to buy government bonds in order to, to save a country and, and somehow increase fiscal sustainability, as they call it, so to make sure that they, they can have access to selling bonds. Um, and Draghi changed it and said, we will do whatever it takes, which was interpreted as the ECB will buy as many government bonds as the market wishes to sell. So there's no risk involved in, in have holding Eurozone government bonds, which means that the, uh, these government bonds would then be practically risk-free. And of course, after the uh, austerity disaster, they, they kind of resort the rules. And when the corona pandemic happened, they, they instantly understood what, what had to be done. Um, so in my book, I've been calling that for that policy since 2014. So I said the, the ECB has to make sure that there is some kind of program, which is an ongoing problem uh, program uh, to fix the problem uh, of, of not finding enough buyers for government bonds. So the ECB should at all times be allowed and also willing to buy up government bonds if private investors don't want to hold them. Um, so they created this pandemic emergency purchase program, which was in the beginning, uh, beginning I think it was 1.35 trillion euros, government bonds and other stuff. Um, and then the Stability and Growth Pact was deactivated because they, they activated this kind of uh, general escape clause. And it's still off until the end of this year. And next week, so the week starting with May 23rd, uh, they will decide whether they, they will um, put it out or, or disable the Stability and Growth Pact for another year. Um, so that's where we are now. And we have, of course, a debate also in the Eurozone about changing the fiscal rules. That should have been done this year, but because of the war in Ukraine, they will shift it to next year. Um, but it's kind of clear that those deficit rules are not going to work and they, they, will, they will never work. They're kind of fair weather rules. Um, and yeah, we're on the way of, of getting them out of the Eurozone governments, I, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, um, from a point of logic, it seems a very simplistic way of trying to run the European, or not the European Union, the Eurozone, um, in that surely if you're looking at a bunch of countries who are forming a union, you have to look at what each country requires um, does it have enough civil service infrastructure? Does it have enough physical infrastructure? You know, where does money need to be spent? Does it have the people who can deliver either that service infrastructure or physical infrastructure? Um, you know, do you need to look at, um, you know, encouraging people to cross borders in, in order to bring up perhaps the infrastructure, either civil service or a physical infrastructure in a neighbouring country. These are these seem to be more logical rules to me rather than a random rule about deficit spending when money is or currency is not a constraint. And your goal, surely, as uh, the European Union, should be to surely, uh, you know, educate everyone to the best ability, ensure everyone has the best standard of living possible, and you know, um, and, and progress uh, the society so that, you know, also green goals are met as well. Now, I see that you were invited to the Bundestag in 2019 to give evidence on the target to real-time gross settlement. So could you explain to our listeners what that is exactly? Yes. Okay. So um, when the euro was created, um, there was one decision that had to be taken. So do we keep the national central banks or do we get rid of them and have just one ECB? 
So if we would have just one ECB for everybody, then all the European banks in the Eurozone would have their account with the ECB. So if, if some Spanish bank would transfer some money to a German bank, um, there would just be a change in the amount of reserves, so reserves or central bank deposits. So the Spanish bank would have less deposits at the ECB and the German bank would have more deposits at the ECB. Um, for the ECB, it, it doesn't do anything much in the balance sheet. It's just that one account is now lower and the other one is, is, is now higher. And that's going to be it. So there's no problem with the balance sheet. So there is a problem with the balance sheet if you keep the national central banks. Okay, so what happens when a Spanish bank makes a payment because a customer of a Spanish bank has bought some German car, for example, from a, from a car dealer, maybe in Germany directly, I don't know, uh, might, might have happened, or if you buy any other import from Germany. So if, if a bank is from Spain makes a payment, they, of course, give up the central bank deposits with the Banco de España, with the Spanish central bank, right? Um, but from the central bank's uh, balance sheet perspective, these reserves are liabilities, Okay, so if you have less liabilities, you will have more equity. Okay, so that's kind of a nasty development. If you look at the balance sheet of the Banco de España, and if you are a, a, a German central banker, you will say, oh, that's, that's very bad. Okay, so, so they are gaining equity when their banks transfer money to German banks. And at the same time, Bundesbank is creating more reserves for the German bank, which is receiving those funds. Okay. Um, and that means that, of course, if the German Bundesbank, the central bank, has more liabilities then. Okay, so that creates a nasty equity hole here. So the German central bank, if Germany is a net exporter, will have negative equity. Okay, and that, of course, was something where, where German economists were very worried because they, they kind of knew that Germany was supposed to be a net exporter, but that was always the goal. So if you are a net exporter and then you have negative equity at the central bank, that would be, it would not be possible to sell this to the German public, okay? It sounds like you're a loser. So the Bundesbank people probably thought about something. So they said, okay, we have to have some kind of balancing balance sheet entry, okay? It's, it's okay. just, a, it's just a, a placeholder in a way, okay? So just to make sure that in Germany we have a Bundesbank which does not have negative equity, every time that we receive money, we get a target two asset. We just call a target to asset. It, it's really nothing, okay? It's just a placeholder. It's not a debt. It's not even an asset. We just call it target to asset. But it doesn't have any maturity. And we can create those target to assets without any limit. So they're automatically created. So whenever a Spanish bank transfers money to a German bank, then these target to assets are created in the German central bank's balance sheet. And the target to liabilities are created in the Banco de España's balance sheet. There's no limit to that. Okay, so it's just a technical part of the payment system. Um, but we all know, well, those who have studied MMT, that it doesn't matter that even if a central bank has negative equity, they can still create money, of course. So um, you cannot say that somehow because of negative equity, a central bank doesn't work right. The Czech central bank has been working with negative equity for, for, for many years. Also in Israel, there's no problem at all with negative equity because you are the creator of currency. So even Christine Lagarde said so in November 2020, she said that even if you would have negative equity at the ECB or at the euro system as a whole, um, she said the, the, the euro system and that's the ECB plus the national central bank, they can still create as much money as needed. Okay, so they, they completely agreed with this MMT view that the central bank is the issue of currency and it can neither run out of currency or go bankrupt. So, so there you have it. Yeah. Uh, do you think that your audience 
um, a proportion of them were surprised. And uh, what kind of questions did you get? Well, I think that that they were not really surprised. I think they were kind of they were doing a political thing there. So it was kind of convenient for the politicians to to shift this kind of target to shift the blame on those target two deficit countries. Okay, it was a nice blame game. So they kind of blamed the southern countries for running big deficits. So Hans-Werner Sinn, a famous economist, argued that they would just print money in Spain and then buy German exports with that money, and it's completely unfair. Um, but also the progressive kind of played that game, so they didn't they didn't want to go against it at least. And um, before I spoke, um, also some some other um, specialists were speaking on on this subject. But I was the first one to say, look. These target two assets are not assets, okay? They're just called assets. They, they just fill in the balance sheet hole in, in a way. Uh, but you cannot, you not, cannot claim that somehow the Spanish central bank owes anything to the German central bank, okay? And afterwards, afterward, so just after I finished talking, so I had only five minutes, and Isabel Schnabel came on, who's now um, with the ECB, and she said, well, uh, Dr. Inns is right. Um, target two assets and liabilities are not really assets and liabilities. And I, I thought, okay. So they just wanted, they just waited for somebody to say it out loud. And it, it wasn't, it, it seems like it wasn't their call, but they kind of thought that I would do it. And then it, it was it was gone as a topic. So um, we didn't have any more Target 2 debates after this debate. Um, so that was a big success in a way for, for us, um, because because that was really stopping us from debating the real issues of, of the Eurozone, like talking about the, the support of the ECB for, for the countries, like, also, we should talk about full employment targets and other goals to achieve and, and stop talking about these fiscal deficits, which are which are really not worth discussing at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I really noticed from living in the Netherlands um, and actually talking to a friend of mine that, you know, that they have this idea that somehow, you know, we're the savers, we're the workers. And those people in Greece and Spain and Italy, they're just sitting back doing nothing while we do all the work and save hard. Um, you know, and I, I find that really interesting because obviously in the UK, we've got the reverse situation where, you know, to a certain extent, it, it, there's there's a, a thinking in London that somehow, you know, Scotland is this complete economic basket case and you know, we we don't really do very much up here, <laughs> and 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 I see the reverse happening in the the European Union. You can't you can't expect all parts of the European Union to look the same and do the same things, and and that should be the beauty of it, surely. I would think. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, this is also the promise of the European Union. So we are supposed to have convergence. So convergence broadly, <clears throat> excuse me, in living standards. Um, and that, of course, means that you have to have some kind of full employment policy because otherwise you might get very high unemployment rates in a couple of countries and then others do, do very well. Um, and I think by now it's clear that we need industrial policy, we need some kind of incomes policy, so there's, there's a lack of institutions. So I think the worst part of it is that we, we cannot address the unemployment problem. Okay, so, so back when we did not have the euro, it was clear to everybody that the federal government would be the one to fix the unemployment problem. Okay, so if people were unemployed and they were not, not happy and all the social ills that came with it, then you'd voted for, for some kind of party which said, oh, well, we need to increase government spending and these people, they, they're, not, they're not unemployed because they're not productive, but they're unemployed because it's, it's just not many, there's not, not enough jobs. That's the problem. Okay, so you've, you've got to add more jobs. 
And it doesn't matter whether the government buys stuff from the private sector and adds private sector jobs. I mean, you can do this and vote even for a conservative party or some kind of socialist party which says we need public employees and, and that's a better idea, so you vote left. I mean, it, it was it was on offer from, from everybody, from, from the whole political spectrum. But when the euro was introduced, uh, then the national government said, oh, sorry, um, we have those deficit limits, so we can't really do that much. Our hands are tied, you know, so sorry. And then when you voted in the European, European elections, they said, well, our budget, our Eurozone budget or European budget, it's the European Union after all, it's about 1% of GDP. So there's really nothing we can do. Okay. So then, of course, when you were unemployed and frustrated, well, who did you vote for? I mean, and, and, and when? And what kind of elections? So I think we have this big gaping hole in the economic policy arena in, in the Eurozone, in the European Union also. Uh, we need to address this. We need to have, make sure that there's a way for voters to express their, their, their unhappiness with the job situation. And the sub job situation, by the way, now is, is compared to the other years, it's very good. <laughs> it's, of course, a bit ironic again. Um, because the deficit limits are off, and governments um, are using their government spending to fix problems instead of, of targeting their spending to, to achieve some stupid fiscal deficits, um, so some, some deficit targets. That means that the unemployment rate in the Eurozone has, for the first time ever, it has been falling below 7%, which is still very high. But it shows you that the macroeconomic uh, regime, in a way, in the Eurozone is, is just dysfunctional. Okay, So those deficit rules have to go. And we need to replace them with, with other targets. Um, and I think that is something which also the European Commission now understands. The ECB understands it, obviously. Um, so that's, I think, that, that needs to be fixed. Yeah. yeah, like like full employment or full education. You know, if you're not working, then, you know, you should be in education or, you know, if perhaps you can afford not to work. You have private income, then, you know, obviously you can do what you like. But, you know, um, we can't have people struggling. And, uh, you know, when there's 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 really so much to go around, we could be doing so much better. Um, now, you also addressed the Irish Parliament in 2021. So what did you talk to the Irish Parliament about, Dirk? Oh yeah, I did. Um, it was fun. Um, so they they asked me about the the deficit rules and the fiscal the fiscal rules of the eurozone because there was talk already in twenty twenty one, and they their concern was was twofold. They first said, look, if we have these deficit limits, um, we cannot create the the green investment that we need. Okay, so we need of course we need uh, to spend more. Um, because, for example, you need you need public infrastructure for for these electric cars. Okay, they need to be charged somewhere. Not everybody has a house and, and a private charger. You you need to have these public grids, and and it's not very profitable for a private company to do it. Or it's a monopoly, and then the private company is very likely to overcharge. So it's it's a classical case for a public monopoly, or at least some kind of solution which which is guided by 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 the public sector. Um, so that was one of their concerns. So they said, so, so what's going to happen there? I mean, we, we want to have these, these funds also. So I think one of the problems was also that there was co-funding so that the European Union would give money if the national government spends money by itself. But if you can't spend because of the deficit rules, then you don't get the additional money. And that means that some countries will be left behind. Um, I think that was that was one of their biggest concerns. And the other one was, of course, the, the general macroeconomic concerns. So... So what's going to happen also in terms of unemployment? Um, Irish was Ireland was very hard, hard hit by the crisis. Um, they they had to nationalize the the banking system because the the ECB forced them to in the troika. So there was this nasty letter saying we cut off liquidity to Irish banks if you don't nationalize them. 
if I remember correctly. Um, so yes, uh, there was a lot of yeah a lot of interest um, about the fiscal reforms because Ireland still has unemployment problems, problems with with low public spending. Um, so I think we had a very good debate there. Yeah, did you think that the again were people surprised by what you said, or um, did they expect it? No, they. I mean, they were kind of surprised to hear it from a German economist. <laughs> Um, but I think it was all logical, and I think everybody was a bit surprised that the wind is changing so quickly, and that nobody called for austerity in the pandemic, for example. So it's just completely off. It's like it never happened. Um, of course, it was it was not it was not foreseeable that this would happen. So so I was a bit optimistic and said, look, this pandemic, you don't need a scapegoat. It's a virus. Uh, it, it came from the outside, but you cannot blame Italy, for example, for this virus and and. They, they had to increase the, the government spending on hospitals and so on, and healthcare. Um, so let them do it. I mean, why, why cut government spending there? So, so nobody asked for austerity. And I think that is, that is uh, well, something which is a big success uh, for, for all the progressives that, that we have in, in the Eurozone. Um, and yeah, I, I think it will not happen again. I think, of course, there will be other ideas to, to, to hit the population and, and to take their money. Um, maybe by privatizing some more assets, but I think this austerity idea is, is truly dead. Um, I think there's just, there's not even a single economist in Germany who would argue that we need austerity now. They talk about high interest rates, but not about austerity. Now, you also co-authored um, a Green New Deal for Europe. So, you know, your your credentials are out there as, as an environmentalist. With the war in Ukraine, do you think, um, I, I read that there's going to be big spending in Germany because obviously you're now not going to have that pipeline, uh, piping gas. But Germany has been a massive producer of goods for a long time now, but that's relied on external energy to make that happen. Do you think that the, the government are really going to get very serious now about you know really getting renewables together in Germany so that they're not relying on Russia? Yeah, well, that's... That's very difficult to judge. So, so I'm in Berlin, but but I don't talk to the parties uh, right now. So, um, it's it's difficult. So they want to get off the the Russian energy, and they would say in the short term we accept all non-Russian energy, even if it's dirty. Okay, so that it, that means that means probably that we have to to take one step backwards in Germany before we can make two steps forward. And uh, we have the Greens in, in in power, so it's a coalition of the Social Democrats, the Greens, and the Liberal Party, which is the smallest one. Um, so it it might be the case that something will will happen um, because they, they they can be serious. But we we still have this debt break, for example, which is in our constitution, and to get rid of it, you need the two third majority. Okay, so so if the German government wants to increase government spending by let's say a hundred billion. Which, we are, which the German government is now doing in, in favor of the German army. So they want to give 100 billion euros to the German army. Um, so they, they kind of know now that, that they can do it. So they can get 100 billion for something. Um, we already also got 100 billion like about 12 or 13 years ago. We, we had an, an extra budget for, for climate change and so uh, and, and other sustainability issues. So I think there's growing awareness that in order to fight these kind of problems, we need more money. And also we understand now that we can get this money politically um, by, by having a majority in, in parliament. So that's kind of, that's kind of advancing the discussion. So it's, it's not like 
we, we ask the question, how do we pay for it? This is what Stephanie Kelton always attacks. So it's, it's not about the question, how do we pay for that? Um, and in Germany and also in zero zone countries, the, the question, how do we pay for that only arises because of these deficit limits and because this, this question whether the ECB will jump in and provide more liquidity by buying up government bonds. But, but we, have, we have kind of fixed those things. And I mean, we have, the, we have the stability and growth pact off deactivated because of the pandemic. Then probably this year they deactivated for next year because of the Ukraine war. And then if in the year after that they do it because of the climate emergency, it will not be a surprise. I mean, people would, would hardly notice. They would say, okay, it's off again. Um, but they would understand why. Um, so I think politically there is now a, a way that has opened up uh, for progressive solutions that was not there before the pandemic started. So, so that has been has been a good development. At least one thing that comes out of the pandemic that is hopefully a, a good thing. Yeah, your your job as a politician is to ensure that first and probably first and foremost that your borders are protected, um, and that you uh, you have a, a large enough standing army to protect those borders. If um, you say, for example. Putin decided to invade Germany. You know, you need to be in a position to make sure that you had to stop that from happening and you could protect your sovereign territory. Do you think people in the parliament are getting a little bit more um, cognizant of these responsibilities as politicians? Yes, I think they surely do. I think this the, the idea of politics in the in the era after the fall of the wall, which was here in Berlin, obviously. So so people thought, and the politicians thought, well, the, the task of politics now is to give more and more power to markets because we have seen that government intervention does not work. Okay. Um, so, so that was the idea of, of politicians. So they would say, okay, I become elected and then I just hand out power to the, to the lobbies and then I try to make sure that markets work. So the banks will look after themselves. And then in 2008 and 2009, they blew themselves up. So they were not uh, acting responsibly, and that was the first scratch in this kind of model. And then, of course, the German car makers, they cheated when it comes to the, to the exhausts and, and what kind of stuff comes out of the exhaust pipes of their cars. So again, we left them to self-regulate, and they, they cheated. So it's, it's very clear now to, to most Germans that these are different times. So we cannot expect to, to let the markets solve our problems. So we gave, in Germany, the, the federal government gave lots of money to, to research to find um, a cure for, for this pandemic, um, to find um, this kind of vaccination. Um, so so they, they gave hundreds of, of millions of euros and even billions, and they, they paid for all of that. Okay, so it's, it's kind of clear by now that in order to fix problems, you need to spend money. Um, and it's also clear now that the government cannot turn to the private sector to solve problems, but they need to, to guide the private sector. Okay, and, and that's... That's also a shift of, of perception. So the politicians now, they, they are supposed to find answers to these policy problems before, like, like 10 years ago, even five years ago, you could say, well, we're going to liberalize the markets and we're going to reduce tax rates and we're going to provide some incentives, I don't know, emission trading or whatever. Um, but that is not acceptable anymore. Okay, so, so the journalists will ask more more questions. So how exactly are, gonna, are you going to hit those targets? How will you achieve these goals? And just saying that you rely on the market, it's, it's not going to solve the problem for you. So you have to be more precise. And that is a shift in, in what in Germany we call zeitgeist. So, so this idea that, that in our times we have certain ideas of how things are supposed to work. And, and that has shifted quite a lot by the pandemic. Um, so I think, again, that, that we are now living in times 
which are very interesting and, and there's a lot there's a lot of harm being still done so a lot of things were mishandled in germany and in the eurozone especially but also in the pandemic um things were not going too well um so we can just but now we have i think we have some kind of hope that going forward the politicians will be will be different kind of politicians more focused on our problems and not so much focused on fiscal deficits and i don't know lobbyists from the financial industry or financial sector it's not an industry going forwards before we finish i really want to find out what your projects are now what your goals are now um what are you going forward with i know that you've been working with pavlina chernova um what other things are you going to get up to in the next year or two well i'm um starting to teach as part of the modern monetary lab or modern money lab in australia um so with uh, stephen hale that's going to be a very interesting project so there will be a graduate program where we try to to merge MMT and the demand side with the supply side, uh, partly degrowth also. Um, so we try to think about this very big question. So if we have a world of unlimited money, theoretically, so how are we going to use this kind of money? Who gets to use it and, and what uh, do we have to use it for? So we want to, to manage, of course, these resources in a sustainable way. And we need to rethink um, what we are doing. Okay, so it was, it was, of course, normal to say, well, we have microeconomics here, macroeconomic there in the last maybe half century, but now we have to reintegrate the two, okay, because every time we spend, we need to look at the resource side and say, okay, how much energy are, are we going to use? How much resources are we going to use? How much labor? Um, that's very important now. So we cannot say, uh, let's have full employment and then, yeah, okay, sorry, we ruined the planet by having full employment. That's not going to work anymore. Okay, so about 10 years ago, it, it still worked. But now we need the new economics in a way. So that's very exciting. Um, but I'm also writing a macroeconomics textbook, which will be published with uh, Springer, a German-speaking uh, publishing company, which is also international. And I'm also in talks with an English publisher about an American version of that. Um, so that's that's also very exciting. And uh, when I'm done with that, I'll, I'll create some online courses so that people can also access these courses from wh wherever they are, because we still have this lack of people. So there's, there's a lot of MMTs now, maybe two dozen even, um, but it still means that there's that's very little universities, very few universities where you can actually go. I think probably in, in England or in the UK in general, you would be hard pressed to find an MMT economist in your macroeconomics class. I think it, there's, there's not even one right now. Um, so yeah, that's that's the way forward. And of course, um, I'm looking forward to the seminar at the Levy Institute, which takes place in in early June, where I meet also Randall Ray and Stephanie Kelton and everybody. So that's also open for for students who are interested in these topics. It's a bit too late now for this year, but I can only recommend this. I I went there as a student in 2012 and it was great. So that's that's a very good point to meet other Europeans who are progressive. That's fantastic. Um, you know, you're, uh, we're very lucky to have you on Scottonomics. I think uh, Germany is very lucky to have you as an economist. And um, I want to thank you very much for joining us tonight, Dirk. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, I think that many politicians are now picking up this stuff. And I can tell you also, it's uh, in Germany, we have these, these young socialists, which are part of the Social Democrats. So it's a youth organization. And they had a manifesto. They always publish a manifesto. It's like every year they meet somewhere and they have this kind of new socialist program. And it was it had about 20 pages on MMT this year. Sorry, last year. Um, um, and they said, look, um, we, we did it online and that's why we were kind of silent about it. 
but just they also said they want to to bring it out um, um, yeah through the media I think either this year or next year so it seems like also the the kind of young people of the of the left parties in Germany also like Linkspartei which is the other left party or the Greens um, I'm also on, on Saturday I will be talking to the Greens and one of their working groups so there's lots of demand for MMT everybody wants to understand money and inflation and and all these kind of issues and it's it's now so obvious that the mainstream is wrong okay so so i think it's it's really going going very well i i thought myself that that maybe i will get old and and maybe not even see the that people will understand mmt <laughs> but i think it now it's a matter of years yeah yeah I, I think it's accelerating and i think the pandemic has really woken a lot of people up to um you know the, the possibilities of of sovereign governments and what they're capable of as well and um, i think that's that's become very obvious as it was during the second world war as well i read i read a biography of a guy who was a folk singer in glasgow mm -hmm. and he talked about he was 13 when the war started and he said you know but one day there were unemployed men walking about destitute practically you know they had no money and um, they were struggling and then the next day there was no unemployment you know war was declared and there was no more unemployment and so it was very obvious to him that you know full employment was possible yeah um, you know it's just it just seemed to be only when wars happen <laughs> so yeah. So, you know, uh, we, we, it's, it's a really obvious example of, yes, this is possible, you know, but that's only happened, you know, in, in this extreme situation and it needs to happen normally. <laughs> this has yeah. to happen normally. It's so strange, but history is so full of unintended consequences of, of random acts, more or less. I mean, for example, this Ukraine war, it means that the euro will not go. Okay, so the euro was always debated back and forth and our, our Spanish and Italian friends, they, they don't like the euro, they want to get off. Um, but that window has closed completely now. I mean, now it's a big, big, happy family. It's everybody in the European Union is now happy to be in the European Union, happy to be in the Eurozone. Um, I'm of course, I've, I've been critical from, from the start with the euro, the way it was set up. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of amazed now that, that it's, it's just the fact that you cannot, you cannot be anti-euro right now. It's, you would be completely ignored by the media. Um, so it's the same with the pandemic. What the pandemic has done for us, what was also, I mean, it's completely unintended consequence, but but government spending going up and, and not being inflationary and, and helping things. I mean, we had a Christian Democrat government, for God's sake, and they said, well, let's cut taxes and let's increase government spending on, on wages for the industrial workers so that they can be kept on. And don't have to be fired. I mean, that was that was a conservative government, and and I can tell my students this, and and I tell them that there's no party calling for for austerity, and that the Christian Democrats wanted to increase the government spending and reduce tax rates during the pandemic, and and that that helps. It, it really helps. You know, that's I, I come off as a, as a kind of middle way mainstream economist when I say these kind of things. Like even five years ago, they would have said, "Oh, that's the lefty." <laughs> And yeah, that's again one of these unintended consequences. But but again, it helps us to be to be more of more at the center of the debates. And yeah, I, I'm. Yeah, I, I, think, I think these these concepts about left and right again are they're going to become outdated. I mean, yeah. I think I think we're moving towards also climate change deniers and people that are concerned about climate change. That seems to be, and that's definitely 
uh, that crosses over the left and right divide. Um, you've definitely got, you know, uh, deniers on both sides of that. And it is the existential threat to our lives. And that probably is going to become the, the thing that we, will concern most people because we all want to live and we want our children and grandchildren to live as well. So, um, yeah, that's that's going to be, I think, that will change the focus. Um, there was a really good result in Australia yesterday. The, yeah, so um, they got rid of the very um, uh, climate change denying government. So uh, that's that's progress as well. A lot of independence, a lot of women. Um, so yeah, there, there seems to be some good stuff happening there, and that really needs to happen in Australia. Really has to happen um, because yeah, they've had some really dreadful effects from global warming as well. So, yeah, I think I think pro we I see progress. I think it's uh, it's coming and I think we've got reasons to be hopeful. Yes, I do. I do think so, too. I think it's it's again, it's um, it's getting faster and faster. The wheel is spinning faster now. And I think it has to. Um, and, and we also have debates now on Twitter with with Friday for Future activists. Yes. which are saying that we need taxes to spend uh, and so on. Um, but these discussions are happening and, and that's a good, a good sign. So so we're not so small. They cannot ignore us anymore. And and because I think our logic is clear and, and it's also the correct description of, of the, the system, the monetary system. So it doesn't solve all problems, but at least we can discuss our problems in a better way. So, so that... Yeah, it's, it, you know, the fundamental thing that governments and people need to be talking about is what are we doing with our resources yes, exactly. how are we directing our real resources what are we doing with our real resources um you know most especially for for countries that are monetarily sovereign um and 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 so let's look at that and and if if we need to direct them there then we will fund that and uh, if we get inflation then we'll work out what we're going to do about that. And um, these things can be dealt with. So yeah, it's it's it, you know we have this existential threat to our to our planet, and that that's the, the main thing that has to happen. So again, I'm going to say thank you, thank you so much for joining us. I've been I wanted to get you on for ages, and yeah. uh, we've got there. It was nice, and I hope I'll, I'll see you again somewhere sometime on Scottonomics. So yes. Um...